When I was working on my master's degree, I had become fairly confident in my ability to format papers properly by APA standards. And you guys are probably going, what in the world does this have to do with the church, right? But, and I'll explain APA formatting standards. What APA standards are is the American Psychological Association. Now, when you're in doing higher education, every, and even in high school, every school uses a particular formatting style. And there's several you can choose from. Chicago, Turabian, MLA, APA, etc., etc. Well, my school was APA for undergrad and APA for the masters. And so I was getting really confident that I could do formatting correctly. Like, I should never get counted off for any errors, you know, of, on how I cited sources or, or how I set up the title page or any of those things. You know, there's just no way that I was going to... Uh, that I was going to get counted off for any of that stuff. And so, just interesting that when my first class of my master's and my second class of my master's, no errors. You know, I didn't get counted off on anything. But then I got to my third class of my master's degree, and I discovered something. The professor for that class didn't think I was as good as I thought I was. And... She counted me off for some points. Now, even though my confidence had, had continued to build and, and all of these things, and, but she counted me off and my immediate reaction was, she's wrong. I've been doing this for, you know, X amount of time. She's wrong. There's no way. And then I got out the APA manual. I have a little APA manual that I, have loaned to my wife now, but I keep it. It tells you all these citing rules and all these things. And I got the manual out and I looked up some of the stuff. And you know what I found out? Some of what she said was wrong, but she was right about some of it. And I'm like, really? Really? Hundreds of papers I've written and no one has ever called me out on this. I, I thought that I was right on these things. And and some of the stuff that she called me out on, I guess nobody had ever pointed out to her, didn't match up with the way the manual said that it was supposed to be. And, and, and so she thought she was right on them. Have you ever thought that in something in life? That you're right? And that what other people are thinking is wrong? And that other people, what they're thinking they're right? And that what everybody else is thinking is wrong. I mean, that's just life, isn't it? I mean, if you, if you don't want to admit to, to having that issue, have you ever been in an argument with your husband or wife? Right? You didn't get in an argument with them because you thought you both were right. You know, you thought you were right and they were wrong. Right? It's this whole subjective versus objective truth thing. You know, that, that, that this is truth as I see it. This is truth as, as I've interpreted it, what I believe. But what we found out there, this professor and I, was that neither one of our subjective interpretations of the manual or what we thought was totally correct. And so, can you go ahead and advance it? We learned this important lesson. Don't believe everything you think. Do not believe everything you think. Now, we can giggle about that. 
Because it seems, you know, like when we're thinking about somebody else, we're like, of course they shouldn't believe everything they think. But just because the idea pops in your mind, it isn't right necessarily. This is especially true inside of the Christian church. I can't tell you how many times people have come and asked this question, and I know the question in and of itself in their mind is harmless enough. But I don't think it's actually a harmless question. I'm not saying they mean it in a bad way, but they say, Pastor, what do you think about this? If I tell you what I think, that's my subjective interpretation. We have to agree to do what this professor and I did when it came to the formatting of the paper to go to the manual and see what the manual says. But we've got something that's better than an APA manual because the APA manual is on its sixth edition. And that's not its sixth translation. That's we've decided to change it, right? But we have God's Word that's unchanging, that's not subjective, And church, I want to challenge you today to think about this, that how many times are we going through and looking at our subjective interpretation of the Bible? That we're looking at what we think and not necessarily what God says. Now, I want you to understand, I believe that that what we're talking about here is part of the reason that the author of Hebrews repeatedly points out to us who have faithfully inter- uh, excuse me, it is, wow, I've lost my place here. Part of the reason the author of Hebrews repeatedly points out to us those who have faithfully interpreted God's message correctly. If you go ahead and show the scripture, we're going to be looking today at Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. And, and the author of Hebrews does something, and he really starts this in chapter 3 really starts us in chapter 3. starts repeating himself over and over and over again. starts repeating this quote from, from one of the Psalms over and over again. While you're turning to chapter 4, I want to read to you chapter 3 here, uh, part, of, part of this, starting in verse 7 of chapter 3. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear His voice, don't harden your hearts, as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test. You know, you get, and that ends with, They shall not enter my rest. So we get over to chapter, before we get to chapter 4, he said it again. Then we get to the beginning of chapter 4, and he, re, and he quotes that thing another three times. And I think the author of Hebrews is trying to say something to us here. So let's read it together. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Here's what it says. Therefore, starting in verse 1 of chapter 4, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us, just as to them. Because they were, excuse me, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed entered that rest, as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, They shall not enter my rest. 
Well, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he points, appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Now you're going to see this as we go through it today. But I want you to to understand that the author of Hebrews is saying here, he's pointed out that properly understanding the message will cause us to be united by faith with those who went before us. United by faith with those who went before us. That's what this really confusing passage, I think, is starting to point out to us. And I think the book of Hebrews is showing that to us as we go through it. Remember when I started the series on Hebrews back in September, I said that there is a lot more that is the same about the Old Testament covenant and the New Testament covenant than the differences. There are differences. I no longer take sacrifices to the temple and and sacrifice them. But, The similarity, it's the blood of the Lamb that washes away sins. In the Old Testament, it was a temporary thing. In the New Testament, it's a permanent thing about Jesus, all looking at the blood of the Lamb. There's so much more similarity than difference. The differences are are not nearly as big as we like to point out. And I want you to grab a hold of that. That we are united with faith by those who have done this. The book of Hebrews does some really cool things. And, and I don't want to get ahead of myself in my sermon. So we're going to go ahead and move on to the next slide. We're going to talk about discovering truth. And the first point on the slide says, Many people fail to find peace with God because they refuse to receive the message on God's terms. That's what it said there in the passage. That's what it said there in the passage. But I know that this is hard to swallow. So before we go on, let's pray and let's ask the Lord to give us eyes to see and ears to hear and understand. Father, sometimes this is, it's difficult. Lord, there are things in your word that we just latch on to immediately. We love them. They're promises and they encourage us. But Lord, at other times there are issues that we struggle with. And I think this is one of those things. And so we, help, we, we ask you, Holy Spirit, today to help us. We cry out to you, help us to understand. Help us to be united in faith with those who've gone before us. Help us to properly understand your objective truth and not to subject it to our individual interpretations, but to see it the way that you see it. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. And God's people said, Amen. So in verse 2 is where we're going to be looking at right now. It says, For good news came to, to us, just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were united, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. 
In this passage of Scripture, God is, is, is telling us about this rest, this peace with Him. This peace that we can have with Him. And the author of Hebrews, all throughout this passage of Scripture, is very insistent that this rest was not entering the promised land across the Jordan River. But that it was something that, that was for them in the future. Something that for us today, the way is still opened. This wasn't about going into, in, into the, the physical land of Israel that became the nation of Israel. But it was about entering into this heavenly relationship with our God. In verses 6 and 7, he says, Since therefore it remains for some to enter, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. And again, he appoints in verse 7, A certain day, today, saying, Through David, so long afterwards, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice. This is not something that was accomplished and done in the Old Testament. You need to understand that. Because it said that there were people in the Old Testament times who failed to enter this rest because they let it be up to their subjective interpretation. The oral law, the oral tradition inside of Israel at the time that Jesus came taught that the very ground, the very land of the land in, in, of Israel's nation, the dirt itself was consecrated and holy. Jews who were coming from outside of the borders, the national borders of Israel, when they would get to the borders, they were told to, to take the dirt that was on their feet and shake it off and clean themselves off and not to bring any of that defiled dirt in. I know that that seems ridiculous for me to say that to you, but you've got to understand, Jesus even made reference to this law when He was preaching. He said He sent the disciples out two by two. To go out and witness. And he said, if anyone receives you, let your, pe- let your peace be upon them. But if they don't, shake off the dust of your feet against them as a testimony. He was making a reference to this law that they had in the land of Israel. See, their subjective interpretation was that the land flowing with milk and honey was this temporary land. And I'm not saying that God didn't give Israel a temporal blessing. He certainly did. But this wasn't what he was talking about, entering his rest. And the author of Hebrews makes that pretty clear. Because there were many people who came across the national borders of Israel once it was established as a nation, but they did not obtain the rest that God was talking about. We have to receive the message the way God intends it. And the second point on the slide says that God's terms are that we have to receive the message and respond to it in an appropriate way. In the first point, I said that we fail to receive the message on God's terms. Now, what are God's terms? That we receive the message and respond to it in an appropriate way. The Jewish nation interpreted the promise of the coming Messiah improperly. He was going to be this conquering hero who would set up and rule and, and he would push everybody back. And that's true. There were, and there were 
prophecies about that. He's not done that yet. He is going to rule for a thousand years as a king from a throne in Jerusalem. That's the millennial kingdom. We're a premillennial people. Don't get that confused with the tribulation. You can be whatever you want to on the tribulation. But we believe that Jesus is going to come back and set up an earthly kingdom in the, in the, starting from the land of Israel and He's going to rule. It's in Revelation. It says that He does that. He reigns for a thousand years. But they misinterpreted this, all of these prophecies, expecting this. And so when Jesus came first to redeem them spiritually, they missed it. Because they said, this is what the message has got to mean. Were they the, did everybody miss it? No. Not everybody. John the Baptist got it. Zacchaeus got it. you got to understand, in the oral law inside of the nation of Israel, you had you know, different kind of castes. It wasn't really a caste society like we think of with India, but there were definitely you know, different levels inside of the nation of Israel. And, and, you know, what could happen there and how things could be done and who could mix with who and all of these things. But we all know that Gentiles were at the bottom of that list. Gentiles were anybody that was not a Jew. So, if you are a Jew by national heritage, you were like born a Jewish person, you're an Israeli, raise your hand. Did I see one hand go up? Okay, so you guys are all Gentiles then. So you're like the lowest of the low. Well, actually not the lowest of the low. Because a Jewish tax collector who collected taxes for a foreign government from the Jewish people was considered even lower. So Zacchaeus, who was a Jew, was considered lower than you as a Gentile. Zacchaeus got it. The twelve disciples... These were all guys that at Bar Mitzvah went back to their family business. They weren't the skilled ones. They weren't able to go and, and, uh, and go on through the school and become rabbis themselves. So they went back into the family business. They were uneducated. We talked about that a little bit this morning in training ground. I quoted something out of Acts chapter 4 where Peter and John were, were preaching Jesus and they couldn't, the, the Sanhedrin couldn't deny the miracles that were happening. They said they perceived that they were uneducated men. They weren't guys who went all the way through the schooling all the way to the very end. They weren't rabbis, but they couldn't dispute that Jesus had done something in them. These were the guys, they got it. They hadn't been overeducated in the promises. They got it. Now Paul, was one of the educated elite. Now he had a, an encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, and he got it. He didn't get it at first, but he got it. But I want you to wrestle with this, is that God's terms are that we had to receive the message and we had to respond to it in an appropriate way. Now the third point on the slide says, the problem that many of us face is that God is the one who gets to determine the appropriate response. Not us. That's the problem we face. Well, I don't like what that says there. So that can't be what he means. I don't like that, that God says this thing here is a sin. He can't be right. That, can't, that, that was for those people back then. It doesn't mean it for us now. I don't like that, that God says that, uh, 
you know, I have to submit to the authority of the elders in my local church. You know, I know, I, and I know pastors that are dear friends of mine who won't submit to elders in their church. They won't do that. I love them. I, I, know, I know they love Jesus, but they're like, nope, I'm the authority, right? I don't like that promise. But we're all supposed to be subject to authority, including pastors. God is the one who gets to determine what is appropriate and what is not appropriate, not us. Now, we can all see this in very broad, in a very broad sense when we're looking at everybody else. And we talked last week about the message was, who me? Remember, you got one finger pointing out there. You got three pointing back at you. Right? The message first for us. We're real good at pointing this out. We're real good for the for the liberal denominations who want to say that homosexuality is not a sin. That was back then. We're real good at saying, no, they're misinterpreting the scriptures. Now listen to me. You got to understand something. God's truth is God's truth. Homosexuality is a sin. Can that person be born again? Absolutely. And God will clean that sin out of their life when he's ready to. But I just have to say, this is what God's word says. And I accept that. Now let me wrestle through how this works. Right? But some people don't want to say that. And so they say, no. This can't be what it means. I don't like it. But God gets to determine it. But let's go to one a little bit more difficult. We don't like to believe that lying is on the same level as homosexuality. But it says over and over again that liars will have their place in a lake of fire. It says that. We don't like to do that. We want to say, well, it can't mean that. So we struggle with this. But God says that lying is a sin. Can I get a witness? He says, don't bear false witness. That's one of the big ten. Amen? And those were, those were re, the Ten Commandments aren't gone, friends. Jesus said the entire law and prophets hangs on two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your strength, mind, on all your being, with everything that you have. I'm paraphrasing it. And he says, and the second is like unto it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Let me tell you another way you could translate this in the Greek when Jesus says this. You could translate it like this. Here, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength. And the second, or and another way to say it is love your neighbor as yourself. That's what Jesus is saying. Another way to say it is love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and the prophets hang on these two commands. Like the Old Testament still applies in the exact same way as it applied in the Old Testament times. The law was never a means to righteousness. They were not saved out of Egyptian bondage because they kept the law. The law hadn't even been given yet. They were saved out of Egyptian bondage because they were willing to trust in the spotless lamb's blood shed for them. Can I get amen? Same rules. Different expression. Jesus is the one who gets to determine what this stuff means. And, and you say, why are you beating that up? Because 
why, why are you beating that so hard? Why are you beating us up for that, Pastor? And I'm not beating anyone in particular up. But let me just tell you, I'm frustrated as a pastor in America hearing from Christians, and I'm not saying anybody in OCCA is saying this to me, that the Old Testament doesn't apply to us. Yes, it does! Yes, it does! Paul says, I wouldn't have known what sin was if it wasn't for the law. You doggone right it applies to us. If it was sin under the law, it's still sin. If it was righteous under the law, it's still righteous. Unless Jesus explicitly re-explained it. Favorite verse in the Bible. By this he declared all food clean. Thank you, Jesus, for giving us bacon. We should have like a just, everybody should be, woo! <laughs> I saw Edinburgh Camp had a competition soup chili contest. We're having one here in a, in a week or something like that. But they had this competition. And uh, one of the kids that was in this competition last Saturday, I guess yesterday, their sign said, everything's better with bacon. Because they had apparently bacon potato soup. And they, they were trying to get everybody to vote for them. Everything's better with bacon. But anyways, I digress. Sometimes you get me on a rabbit trail. See how I blamed you? <laughs> so, but, uh, but how do we know what's appropriate? That's the real question. That's the real question. How do we know what's appropriate? And so uh, in verse 2, the author of Hebrews alludes to something really cool that he's going to do in chapter 11 of this book. And so we're going to look at this next slide that says the cloud of witnesses. Now, here's the really cool thing. The, the first point on the slide says the author of Hebrews gives us a faith hall of fame catalog to check out okay it's like the faith hall of fame here's the catalog right like has anybody ever checked out like a bass pro shop catalog anybody ever done that okay or cabela's okay okay how about macy's or pennies ladies you know anything i mean we've all seen a catalog right so like hebrews chapter 11 is this really cool catalog you can't buy anything from it but still a really cool catalog it's like the who's who of faith this faith, uh, this faith Hall of Fame catalog. Okay, now you say, I don't know, Pastor, I don't know. Really? Is, is really chapter 4, verse 2 linked to chapter 11? Well, well, let's look at it here. Chapter 4, verse 2. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Chapter 11 of Hebrews tells us about the people who listened by faith. So-and-so did such-and-such. By faith, this person did that. By faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. United by faith. Not by the law. By faith. So yes, I believe the author of Hebrews is doing something really cool here. I believe he's alluding to later on in, in, the, in the message. You know, and that's cool because God knew what he was going to have the author of Hebrews write down. So he's like, hey, write this down. And he's alluding to that. Chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews gives us explicit examples of how to live out our faith by showing us examples from the past from those who have heard, understood, and applied the message of faith properly. There is a brother of mine who, do, who, did, who has done something recently that I do 
at times. And I learned it from the Faith Hall of Fame. And I believe this brother did too. I have taken before God and said, God, if you're speaking to me, if this is what you want me to do, can you, can you provide me a sign? I, I, I'm, I'm afraid I'm not hearing you properly. I don't doubt you. I doubt that I'm understanding. Can you give me some clarification on this? Right? And we are really good at the ch- as the church for beating people up for doing that. But that was Gideon who did that. Laid out a fleece. He did that repeatedly, by the way. Not with just the fleece. After he got to that one, then, he was, then they said, well, go down here and, and do this. And Gideon was afraid to go down there and do it. He said, Lord, I don't know. He said, and so the Lord says, fine, take your servant Purah and go down there and, and listen. Gave him another sign. Were the guys down there with a dream, having a dream of a barley loaf rolling in, and the other guy in that foreign army interprets that as Gideon's coming. And you think, okay, well, Gideon's good to go. Nope, nope. He gathers everybody together for the army. He's not. He's looking, and the Lord's like, the army's too big, and he's like, seriously? Am I, am I really hearing you right? Lord, can you help me out here? So the Lord's like, well, yeah. Just take everybody down. Uh, tell everybody who's afraid they can go home. So Gideon, like all these guys came together for war. So who's going to admit they're, they're afraid, right? But God tells him to do it. So Gideon's like, okay, I want to make sure I'm hearing right that the army's supposed to be smaller. Hey, if you're afraid, go home. And a bunch of them went home. And the Lord's like, hey, the army's still, still too big. You've got to whittle it down. Gideon's like, am I hearing you right? God says, all right, tell you what. Just to show you that you're hearing me right, go down by the stream, and everybody who laps the water like a dog. So that's like the goofy people. Have you ever, you know, that's like, if you're a dog lapper, you're not really goofy. I'm just kidding, okay? But no, seriously. Like, when I go down to drink water, I'm like, cup it. You know, if I'm drinking out of the stream, I don't lap it like a dog. I make a cup out of my hands. He said, take the ones who lap it like a dog. That's going to be the small minority. Keep them and send everybody else home. And then take them and go to war. Like this made, the Gideon is in the list of the faithful for this. It's like at the end of Hebrews chapter 11, the author of Hebrews says that it would, and I don't have the time to tell you of Barak and of Gideon and of this person. He's in the faith hall of fame for this. As an example. As an example, not as a rule to say, okay, Jeff, uh, you're not sure if you're supposed to go uh, to work for this school system, so take the principal out and see if he laps the water like a dog, and if he does, go to that one. No, no, that's not, it's not the specific thing. It's the example that it's okay to say, God, I trust you. I'm not sure I'm hearing you correctly. Can you help me out here? If I know that I'm hearing from you properly, then I'll follow. But I need to make sure I'm hearing properly. Faith Hall of Fame. This is one of the ways that we can begin to look at saying, okay, is it my subjective interpretation or is it what God means? Now I want to point out to you here that Hebrews 11, the next point says Hebrews 11 is not a complete listing of the faithful. It's only a starting place. The book of Acts is another great place. 
It's another great historical record for us to go to find faithful men and women of God who've properly interpreted the message of faith. One of my favorite passages in the book of Acts is Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. This is the institution of the church, and it tells us what the church should be like. And they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of the bread, to the fellowship, and to prayer. And God added to their numbers daily and they were selling their belongings and giving to each other as they had need. And they were meeting together daily in the temples and in their homes. And they were breaking bread and they were having great favor. And people were getting saved! Woohoo! So I'm like, God, are we doing the right thing here at OCCA? Friends, since September, nine people have come into the faith. Woohoo! Amen! So we can say, are we doing some stuff right? Are we doing everything right? No. Are we doing some stuff right? Yes. But the book of Acts, now now the whole thing about the book of Acts, it's a little bit different than, than chapter 11 of Hebrews. If you read the whole book of Acts, there's definitely some things not to do. Okay? Ananias and Sapphira lied. God struck them dead. Mm, I'm saying don't go lie to the Holy Spirit. It's not a good idea. Right, we we definitely see some negative examples there. Saul of Tarsus, before he went by his Roman name Paul, was persecuting the church, overseeing martyrdoms. I don't think we need to be doing that. Some of the examples are negative, and we need to apply that to some of the examples from uh, the Faith Hall of Fame too. Because like, if you go read about Jephthah, like. Jephthah was in the Faith Hall of Fame. Like he appears in uh, Judges chapter 11, I believe. And he made a vow to sacrifice the first thing that came out of his door to God. And it was his daughter. And he's in the Faith Hall of Fame for that. Because he followed through with it. Now, it doesn't tell us that he actually chopped her up in little pieces and burned her. And we'll get into that when we get to chapter 11 of Hebrews. But why he's there, he made a rash vow. He gave his word. He made a vow unto God and he kept it. I have a pastor friend of mine, Larry Williams, who learning from that example in Scripture, he preached a message on this character of the rash vow. Like two, three weeks later, he's sharing office space in this building like they don't have enough room in the church facility. So he's he's moved his office out of the church facility so they can make more room in the facility for other stuff. And he's sharing office space in this hallway with this uh, accounting firm. And the lady who's in charge of this accounting firm keeps coming to him saying, Pastor, I've never met a a pastor who does his taxes correctly. Let me redo your taxes. He's like, no, I did them right. No pastor, no, no pastor ever does it. You guys have really complicated tax laws. Let me do your taxes. Nope, I did them right. She keeps hounding She says, I guarantee you I'm going to find you money. Nope, did them right. Finally, she wears him down, and this is what he spouts off. Fine, I'm going to let you do my taxes, and if you find something, I'll give you half of it. And she says, I don't want half of it. I just want my fee. He goes, no, I'm so sure I did it right. I'll give you half. Now, that wasn't this year's taxes. That was a year prior. The year prior. So she was going to look at his taxes and see about amending his return. 
When he got to the end of the tax year, he, he figured out his taxes and he said, I owe the government $10,000. And he mailed them a $10,000 check with his return and you can guarantee that the government did not point out his error to him. <laughs> they owed him ten grand. He got a, a $20,000 refund because he overpaid by ten when they sh- He gave them ten when they should have been the one giving him ten. He messed his taxes up that bad. He said... She calls me and says, $20,000 is what's owed. He goes, oh, are you sure? She goes, oh, I'm positive. I'm positive. She goes, and he goes, oh, I, I don't want to make... She goes, look, my livelihood depends on this. I am licensed for this. And if I mess this up, I'll lose my license. If, 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 if I mess it up, all you're going to have to do is just pay it back. But I'm going to be the one that loses my livelihood, my business. I'm positive. He goes, okay. He hangs up the phone with her and the Lord says, remember that sermon you preached? You gonna follow through with it? He gave her a ten thousand dollar check. She didn't want to take it. She was a believer. He said, "I don't care. Give it to your church. Whatever. It's hard." But see, he learned from the Faith Hall of Fame. He learned how to properly interpret it. He could have said, "Well, well, Lord, I was just being ignorant. I was just being stupid. I'm, I'm sorry. Forgive me." But no, he he had to follow through. I know that's hard to believe. But it's the truth. His name's Larry Williams. Pastor of Crossroads Fellowship in Clarksville, Tennessee. Telephone number is 931-552-2828. Call and say, I'd like to talk to Pastor Larry. Tell me about the $10,000 check you had to give to the tax lady. She came, he came back the next day. She came back after telling him that. says, you want me to amend the pre- previous years? And he goes, yes, but I'm only paying you your fee. <laughs> he learned. Right? So Acts, and, and you know, why I said all of that is because we learn good examples, but like the book of Acts also has some negative examples. There's also in Scripture some ways to not live out our faith. And we need to see those things. The next point on the slide says this. The church is a living catalog of the Faith Hall of Fame, and we can learn from those who have gone before us. The church, you and I, We are a living catalog of the Faith Hall of Fame. One of the Proverbs says that iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. It tells us in another place in the Scriptures that plans fail for a lack of counselors, therefore seek a multitude of counselors. I believe that it's implied that they're godly counselors. We we are a living catalog And we especially need to check those things when we come up with something that's maybe way different than what everybody else is coming up with. Going and saying, hey, uh, Charlie, I've come up with a really different interpretation. Or, you know, I'm thinking this, da-da-da-da. What do you think about this? And Charlie's like, I don't, dude, that doesn't really, I don't don't think so. That's that's not how I see it. Well, let's get somebody else. Hey, Steve, what do you think? Hey, Rob, what do you think? And everybody's like, "Um, no, man, that's not how I'm living that out in my life. Oh, well, maybe I ought to back away from that. Maybe I ought to back away from that because the living catalog of faith right here. Because this is like community that we walk in faith in. And we learn to live our faith out in it. There is no home correspondence course for Christianity. The word church is the ecclesia. It's the called out ones. Those who have been called out. It is plural by nature. Not singular. Living. Living. Faith Hall of Fame. 
a living faith hall of fame. How have those that have gone before us, how have they lived out their faith? How have we seen God move? This is where we talk about using the older men and women. And I don't mean by age, I mean by spiritual maturity. Sometimes that goes with physical age, but sometimes not. You know, but taking those who are older in the faith and learning from them and saying, how have you applied this passage? Because every part of the body is useful. Every part of the body is useful. The book of Titus is one place in the New Testament where the church is specifically instructed to learn how to live out their faith by following the example of more seasoned saints. Have the older teach the younger. Marianne, Ernie, I know today is the day you guys became members, but I'm charging you in the presence of God. Teach those that are younger in the faith to walk it out. Right? Becky, teach them. It specifically talks about women, older women teaching the younger women. Get in there. Get involved. You younger ladies in the faith, and I could go around and point out those that are more mature and those that are younger in the faith, you have a responsibility, and I charge you in the presence of God and of this congregation to connect with those that have walked in the faith and learn how to walk it out. You don't have to make the same mistakes they made. And they made some mistakes along the way. Can I get a witness from those of us who've made a little mistakes here and there? Amen? You don't got to make the same mistakes. Learn. This is specifically instructed to us in Scripture that we can learn from the living catalog of the Faith Hall of Fame. Paul points out in another, in three places, in at least three places in the New Testament, Paul points out that imitating his life of faith is another way. Paul actually says three different places in the New Testament, imitate me. When you have spiritual leaders in your life, whether they are officially appointed to a leadership position or whether, or if they're just leaders because they just love Jesus, it's okay to imitate them in their faith. It's okay to follow them as they played out their faith and for you to, to apply those same principles. So the next slide asks this question, or it's, it makes this statement, what it means. The first point on that slide says that being united by faith with those who went before us does not preclude new expressions of the faith, but it does mean these new expressions of the faith must stem from the same principles of the older expressions of faith. The word preclude, the word preclude means that it's not, um, it's not, it's not eliminated. It's not forbidden, right? Like we have some new expressions of the faith here at OCCA. Your mama's church and your grandmama's church probably didn't have Mark and the boys and gals up there rocking it out. Right? That's a new expression of the faith. It's a new and relevant way. But it is grounded in the same principle of the older expressions of faith. We're going to worship God. We're going to glorify God. We are going to make sure that everything that we do honors Him. 
Like, so hymns versus modern music. The expression is quite different, but the principles of worshiping God in song with lyrics that extol His holy name is the same. Like when we do this, we need to make sure that the, the songs that we're singing are about Him. They are lifting up the name of Jesus. It may not be done with an organ and with a piano, but it needs to be glorifying God. That's the principle. And this has been a battle all throughout history. You may or may not know this. The tune to how... how not I started to give the wrong uh, song. The tune to How Great Thou Art. Oh Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made. That was a new expression of faith when it came out. That melody was a drinking song that all the lost people were familiar with. So they put the they put the lyrics to the melody everybody knew to say we're going to take something here the new expression of faith. Like guess what? Those that are older have done the same things we're trying to do, putting the faith in expressions that are that are relevant to the crowd that we're trying to reach. Worship in Oil City is going to be different than worship in Seattle. It's going to be different than worship in the deep south. And that's okay. The principles are the same though. We're going to extol the name of God. We're going to glorify and magnify Jesus Christ and Him alone. Here's another example we could use. Small group studies versus traditional Sunday school classes. Different expressions. But the principle of placing the study of God's Word in a central place of importance is the same. We're going to study to show ourselves the work approved because a workman approved need not be ashamed. Different expression of the faith. Same principle. And we need to boil it down to principles. Which is my point in all of this. It doesn't mean we have to do it exactly the same way, but the principle needs to be the same. The principle is what matters. Because if it had to be exactly the same, then every church across the country should be singing the same songs every Sunday morning, should be reading the same scriptures every Sunday morning. And by the way, there's denominations that do that, and they call it liturgy. And I'm not anti-liturgy. That's fine. That's an expression of the faith where they're trying to be consistent and grow and there's nothing wrong with that. But if it has to be the same, then it's all got to be the same. If, the new, if, if we can't have new expressions of the faith, then everybody needs to go home today, get rid of all of your clothes. We all need to get all like Jewish robes and things like that and sandals and we need to walk around looking like Jews. We need to stop singing even the hymns. We need to go back and start singing Hebrew chants and all of this stuff. No. Principles are the same. The expression, how we apply that in our life, as long as it's based in a principle that's scriptural. And I know I'm repeating this over and over again. I'm trying to drive this home. Because I need you to grab a hold of this. Because the principle for what's going to happen on the 2nd of February is that we're going to preach the gospel. We're going to become all things to all people so that we might win some to Christ. So Rob Hoover is going to be, kind of become like Chris Angel on the stage and do these illusions and these tricks so that we, want, so that we might win some to Christ. Amen. The principle is that we're going to reach out with evangelism and let Rob use the gifts and the talents that God has given him.
It's a new expression of faith. Grounded in the scriptural principle. And I've seen the Living Faith Hall of Fame like Kevin Sheehan, who's that missionary to that creative access country. I've seen him live that out. By the way, Rob's part of a group, a guild, if you will, a coalition of people who use illusions and tricks to present the gospel. And he learned that expression of faith from his family. The living catalog of faith. Do you understand what I'm saying? This truth is not relativistic. God's truth is not relativistic. God's truth is God's truth. And we go back and we hold it up next to the manual. This is the manual. We say are the principles that, are, that this manual is teaching. Are, is that what we're basing this in? And if it is, we have freedom to move forward. If it's not, we need to stop. But we don't get to decide truth. God gets to decide truth. And, and, and I would that it were that it was the lost world that we fight about the expressions of the faith with so often. But it's not. It's the church. We eat each other for dinner over this stuff. Now, I'm not saying that people at OCCA are eating each other for dinner over it. I'm just saying the church universal eats each other up over this. And we have to be, be careful about that. We have to be careful about that. We need to be united by faith. Does that mean that we need to rubber stamp everything that anybody says is Christian? No. But if, it's a, but if it is a faithful expression of Christianity that is based in a principle in God's word, then it's okay. It may not be what we like. It may not be for me. But it doesn't matter. We are united by faith. And we need to let that sink into our hearts. That starts here. We need to be united in faith, by faith, with those around us. You have men and women to your left and to your right. Be united by faith with them. Ron had no idea what I was going to preach today. But he started off with a psalm. What did the psalm first say, Ron? Yell it out real loud. It is... Oh, I'm sorry. The, the one, excuse me, the membership one. The membership class one. Psalm 133, it says, It is good for brothers to dwell in unity. United by faith. United by faith. Every person that is physically in this room and the ones who weren't able to make it today are your brothers and sisters in the Lord and you need to be united with them. They're not expendable. They may be trying to express the faith differently than you. So doggone what? Connect with them. Grow with them. 
Now you may be thinking, Pastor, oh, oh no, you know, you're kind of crazy. Well, we got homework this week to show you. We've got homework this week. So Monday and Tuesday, uh, Monday's Hebrews chapter 11 verses 1 through 22, Tuesday Hebrews chapter 11 verses 23 through 40. These are the two days that we're going to read the Faith Hall of Fame. Now, for those of you who are really crazy when you get to read in this Faith Hall of Fame, if you got the time, go look up the stories. And I, and I use the word stories very loosely. They're not stories. They're historical records. They're not made up. They're real facts. So go look at them, though. Go look at these different ones. Go look at Barack. Go look at all these different people who were commended for their faith. So that's Monday and Tuesday. Hebrews 11 verses 1 through 22. Tuesday, Hebrews 11, verses 23 through 40. Wednesday, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. That we can be united in faith, by faith, with the early church. If our church becomes devoted to those things, the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread, fellowship, and the prayer, we're united across centuries. Thursday, Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And Friday, Philippians 3, 17 through 21. Specific places in Scripture where it tells us to look at those around us that are in our churches. The first one is talking about following the younger, learning from the older. The second one is one of the places where Paul says, imitate me. Now, the second one about imitating Paul and imitating Christian leaders, leaders of godly character. Not people who are just assigned to be up front and, you know, so if I start going all crazy on you and not living out the faith, don't imitate me, right? But ones who are walking their faith out in godly expressions of the faith. And then Saturday, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. Because that's how the whole Faith Hall of Fame ends. Goes through all of this stuff telling us, look at this, look at this, look at this, and, and do and walk it out like this. And then it says, and it starts the chapter 12 there, it says, and setting our eyes upon Jesus, who is the founder and perfecter of our faith. This is how we determine what the message is. This is what the author of Hebrews is trying to get through to us in this section. And there's other pieces that he's trying to get through to us about this rest and what it all is. But he's saying God gets to determine this. Truth is not relative. Truth is not relative. That doesn't mean you can't question. That doesn't mean you can't doubt or struggle. It means you say, this is God's word. It's true. I don't understand it. I'm going to wrestle out what it means. But I believe it's true. We have to place the word of God back in the center of the faith. Not, not in... Not not usurping Jesus. Because interestingly enough, when we get to the next chapter of Hebrews, these next verses that come right after this, in chapter 4 I mean, it says, the word, it says the word of God is powerful and effective and sharper than any two-edged sword. Right? That's what it says. I want to read it to you real quick. Because I want to give you something to wrestle with. It's in chapter 4. 
For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature, this is verse 13, and no creature is hidden from his sight. Guys, the word there in verse 12 is the same word used in the Gospel of John to denote Jesus. The Logos of God is active and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's talking about Jesus. It says all of this about it, and then it says, and His. It refers to the Word as a person in verse 13. This isn't like, be Bible-centered or Jesus-centered. Jesus is the Word. And we need to put Him back in the central place of importance in the Christian church. Let's pray. Father, you are good. You are holy. You are wonderful and magnificent. Lord, last week in my devotions I was reading in Job where Job describes how great you are and then when he gets done with that he says, and this is just the outskirts of who God is. This is just barely touching on the edge of it. Lord, I thank you that you are so vast and wonderful and powerful. And we ask you, Lord, to speak this week into people's hearts. Lord, to help us to to be unified in your spirit, to live out active expressions of our faith. Lord, united united by faith with those who also have listened and heard. Father, please help us to express our love to you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. And God's people said, Amen.